But anybody who's looking at doing a private space station of any type, whether they're around mm -hmm. the Earth or around the moon or going to Mars, the private people who want to do long duration life support, I think the people that are doing suborbital, they're kind of beyond the game and they're, they're going to be going. It's interesting, they, they were all sort of, there was a little bit of this, well, life support isn't our biggest worry. We've got to get a rocket to work and we've got all this other stuff. I'm very curious when we actually start flying humans, what will show up? We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm Jason Kanigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies, and I am here with Grant Anderson, co-founder and now president and CEO of Paragon Space Development Corporation. Thanks for being here. Hey, wonderful to be here. So, big thing about Paragon is thermal control. I would like to hear what mission Paragon is on and why Paragon and not somebody else. Well, Paragon, we're almost 27 years old now, and our mission has always been to enable humans to go to space. Um, you know, no matter where we go in space, you'll need a life support system around a human, and we keep people at the right, you know, being able to breathe, so keeping the oxygen right, keeping the CO2 down and stuff. And then the second thing is always thermal. Is, is They're kind of picky. Humans don't like being cold. They don't like being too warm. Uh, so we do both. Um, and why Paragon? Paragon... The one thing, reputation that we built up is as one who, a company that looks at the whole picture. Um, there, if you're interested, if you're familiar with something called work breakdown structure, WBS, it's a sort of a term used a lot in the government world, but it's how they break down things into silos of how they fund stuff. And we often joke that there's a, a whole lot of sub-optimization by WBS. Hmm. And that is that I can design you the best system that keeps the weight of the life support system down and will do what you want to do in life support. But if I'm not worried about the knockoff factors of what that does to propulsion, what that does to the power system, what that does to the volume of your spacecraft, I'm really not solving the whole problem. You know, life support tends to touch every single subsystem on a spacecraft. Um, and one of the things we'll do is we'll look at all these subsystems. And in fact, we have run the schematic for most major spacecraft, we have built the initial schematics of not just the life support, but the whole system. And then we tend to go in and say, hey, this technology will work best for this. And we, we like to call ourselves honest brokers. We have certain technologies that we patented, that we have, that we have in the lab. But if that's not the right technology for your problem and your parameters, we'll recommend our, our competitors' products. Um, it's a matter of getting the system's solution right for the customer. And I think that's one thing that differentiates us and at least why you should bring Paragon in to take a look at your whole system. All right. So not just developing capabilities and pushing product, but actually thinking holistically here. All right. You have been with Paragon uh, over a quarter of a century. It's, it's a long time. And you were a co-founder. You've moved through several roles in the company. I'm a vice president, um, senior VP of ops, manufacturing manager, and now president and CEO. And I'm curious as a business owner, this is for me, <laughs> what do you believe has been the critical thing that you've learned in, in terms of being a business leader? Well, um, that when you're a business leader, you're a leader of people. Um, there's technology involved. There is a uh, certain productization of some of your technologies. All of that is very important. And you want to get the best people to be able to execute on those, those technologies and the, the taking that technology from concept to something that's actually doable and cost effective and for your customer. But overarching all that when you're a leader in a company is the people. 
Um, I often joke that, uh, you know, I spent 10 years at Lockheed before I started Paragon and I, I wanted to start a company that was good in technology, but also was good to its people. Um, I, I didn't, uh, maybe a way to put this is I don't want to be responsible for divorce. Um, you'll never find me in front of the company saying, Hey, nobody's working on Saturdays and Sundays, get in here and start working Saturdays and Sundays. Do we have pushes? Do we have sometimes we have to work 70 hour weeks, 80 hour weeks? Sure. But we make sure that that's, that is extraordinary. And that in reality, we also know that nobody ever on their deathbed said, gee, I wish I spent more time in the office. So, so that balance of work-life balance gets a lot of lip service, gets a lot of say, but we take it very seriously. I've, I've had employees come to me and say, I've canceled my vacation um, because I know that I've got to be here for this critical thing. And I say, great, you do that again and you're fired. <laughs> um, I, for, there's two reasons for that. One is, if you have made yourself so critical to the organization that you can't leave and will fall apart and for your two week vacation, I, you're not doing something right. You, you've got to learn to delegate. You've got to learn to bring up people you trust. And the best way to find out if you can trust them is to leave for two months or two weeks, I should say for a vacation or three weeks. You know, we're in, we're in the United States. We talk vacation in weeks, not months like they sometimes do in Europe. <laughs> so we do emphasize that. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, making sure that you understand the technical, uh, let's say the, the frustrations of a technical person working in a bureaucracy. Every company has a bureaucracy, some smaller, some larger. Uh, in fact, every business in the world, nonprofit or profit, is a process that takes less money to produce something of value to the customer than the customer is willing to pay. And, and so you do have to have a certain amount of process. And especially in our world, we're in the life support world, you've got to be extremely rigorous on process. Um, and that's probably my hardest part is you get people to say, oh, we got to do this fast. And oh, by the way, we're going to, you know, we don't want to do this process because we can do it faster. Well, I, I try to instill on people, you never do things faster by skipping a step. It's by doing steps faster, but you still have logical steps in what you want to do. So, so there's all that gathered in with being a leader in a company and making sure that the, the company doesn't rely on the backs of its employees working 70 hours a week and only getting paid for 40 to make a profit. That's just not sustainable mm -hmm. and it's not fair, frankly, in the long run. Yeah. And that is fascinating. The focus, you have much more of a focus on compliance because of the thermal control world that you're in than say uh, Joel Sircell at Momentus, who is pushing forward with 40 engineers he hired this week to break stuff as fast as he can, right? Because he won't kill anybody the way that your guys would, right? If they, if they skip process steps. So it's form is following function there. That's very interesting. You personally have published uh, more than a dozen papers uh, about life support and thermal control. And I'm curious out of those, what has been the most important to you and why? Wow, I, I would really two come to mind there. Uh, one of them I co-authored with a friend of mine named Dr. Leslie Wickman, uh, who's famous for having written the book, The, the God of the Big Bang, which I recommend mm -hmm. reading, where she, she tries to, um, to make sense of the fact of how you can be a scientist and rigorous scientist and still uh, be a religious believer. Mm -hmm. um, but what we did was back in about the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this idea that to build a long duration spacecraft, you had this curve that was 
all the different spray straps that had been built, and it was the number of people and the number of person days that the that it was designed for a mission and the volume. And there was this line in there that was okay. So if we want to do a multi-month mission with three people, that's X number of person days. That now the volume should be 1,500 cubic meters or something like this. And mm -hmm. we wrote a paper that, without saying it, pretty much called bullshit. That, mm -hmm. uh, if you pardon the expression. And we call it um, activities-based design. So, so when we were involved with the first layout, say, of the Orion vehicle, really it's the form follows function. What are you going to do? What things do you need to do in your spacecraft? Then what volumes and what spaces do you need to do what you want to do? It turns out, of course, as you get longer missions, you do need a little more volume. It doesn't really have anything to do with livability. What it has to do with is once you've gone past a few weeks, you can't have a timeline that's every second of the day for the next three years, what you're gonna do. So you have to have team meetings that where you get together and you say, what are we gonna do? So you have to have a place where they can do that in the spacecraft. And in, in the space station, there's mm. in the Vesda module, they have an eating surface area. They do that a lot. And um, the other thing with, with the activities-based is idea is that um, it also then really pushed a little bit of the thinking about how do you do EVA? Because one of the big volume constraints is the extra vehicle activity. How do you get in a suit? How do you get in with a buddy? How do you have two people in a suit? Because you never send one person without a, with a suit and not somebody else. And you've seen a little bit of the manifestation of the thought behind that now in these expandable airlocks. So, so the idea is, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't be allocating this much space inside a spacecraft. Let's do an expandable airlock. So it had a lot of knockdown effects and that have you are now seeing in almost every design. Um, and there's been a fair amount of references back to that. On the other side, we back when Orion was going on and before uh, Dragon, of which we were the systems designers for life support, and at that time it was Rocket Plane Kisser, but it's now Boeing who's doing another human vehicle. Um, we actually sat back and said, what is the best way to design the life support system? what is the pressure you should be at? What, what, you know, the, the shuttle did 14.7, but then they had to knock it down to 10.2 PSI when, before they did an EVA for pre-breeding. But there's an optimization there of how much pressure and what the constituents, how much oxygen, what percentage of oxygen. We did that paper back in 2004 or so. And that got a lot of people thinking about why do we do what we want to do for a brand new vehicle? Um, some of it's been ignored, some of it hasn't, but I think it really did a service to the industry to really take the data from, uh, from prior missions and explain why they did what they did. I mean, there were so many brilliant people that worked on Apollo and Gemini before that and Mercury, and just throwing away that without thinking about why they made the choices they did, they, they, they did as much as they could and they, they really, really sharpened their pencils on those programs. But if you don't understand why they did it, you might very easily design something just like it and not realize why and then find out your parameters are no longer supporting what really happened. So mm. I think that was an important one too. And then of course, we have ones about our technology, uh, why our humidity control technology is better, why our urine processing technology is better. And those are all important mm. too, but they're a kind of less overview and much more down in the weeds, so to speak. Right, but you've got a couple there that have really impacted the industry. Yeah. That, that is curious. I see there's all the time in operations improvement projects where people have been going along doing things the way that they've always done them without thinking, and that can lead to danger 
as you're mm -hmm. saying there, when you come up with something new. So I'm curious how critical uh, you believe NASA's connection with experts of thermal control like uh, your company is. It's really important, if anything else, to sort of get out of the bubble. I mean, there are some fantastic people that I work with at NASA that are very knowledgeable in the thermal world, in the life support world. They've, they've got 30, 40 years there. They've kind of seen it all, um, but they've also seen it all from a government perspective. Mm -hmm. And I, I think looking at what's gone on with the, the commercial vehicles, whether it's Dragon 2 or CST-100 or even Blue Origins uh, vehicles and stuff, that they've been doing the public-private partnership and providing oversight and some insight to them, um, but they've been standing back and sort of letting the commercial companies come up with their own solutions. And I, I must give them a lot of credit for that. Um, the NASA I knew 25 years ago when I was working on the space station program, it was hard for, to get them to even listen to anybody outside of NASA. Mm -hmm. They were kind of seen as, we do manned space, no one else does human spacecraft. Um, so no one else really has any any legitimate input. And I definitely saw that switch uh, over from the starting in the late 90s all the way, you know, until where we are today. Um, and I'll give them much credit for that. I mean, they're, like I said, they're very smart people, um, extremely conscientious. Uh, you know, most most civil servants I work with uh, take their job of, of doing the best with taxpayer dollars extremely seriously. Um, but but yeah, the, the, the getting back into human spaceflight, they've never really been out of it, but they haven't had an active program. The interesting thing with the emergence of these active programs now is that NASA is, has learned less and they're saying, hey, we're not operating this. We're going to buy this service from you. We want to go down to the moon. We want to be in the halo orbit or the, the high altitude lunar orbit. How are you going to do that for us? And here's our criteria. We want to be on the moon for X number of weeks. We want to be able to... And, and so it's providing for a little bit more um, creativity in that regard. Um, we see every once in a while we have to battle with a little bit of the NASA saying, but we want to have it this architecture. And we, we show why that architecture does not work and you need it this architecture. Um, and there's some battles going on. Some of them are very much friendly and, and uh, you could say somewhat of a matter of opinion, but the there's some real technical reasons for it. And we try to document those technical reasons really sharply in what we call technical memos, hmm. not PowerPoint, I might add. Uh, power <laughs> corrupts, PowerPoint corrupts, absolutely. Uh, we, we try not to use PowerPoint in any engineering environment here at Paragon. Okay, and yes, and uh, anybody who has listened to solo episodes of this podcast will know that I talk about documentation a lot. And I lament the term because it turns people off and it's boring, but it's so critical. If you don't write anything down, nobody learns anything and the institutional knowledge departs as soon as people leave and retire and quit and move on to some other job or role. You ain't getting them back. They're not coming back to sit down with you. So you guys worked on at Paragon a project called the Strat X Space Drive. What was our space dive, excuse me, not drive. Um, this was a... Um, a, a drop. So tell us about that. Okay, so a lot of people, of course, have heard of Stratos, Red Bull Stratos, which was Felix Baumgartner diving from about 128,000 feet. Um, what a lot of people don't know is while he was doing that program, we uh, were approached by a Google executive who said, hey, I've looked at all these ways of going up high into the stratosphere and skydiving, and I'm worried about the fact that they've got this capsule. Hmm. Because if you look at the historical um, 
attempts at this. Most of the technical problems and some of them fatal have been the interface with that capsule and the person. And in the case of, of uh, Red Bull Stratos and, and, uh, and Felix Baumgartner, he went up in a capsule, he had to detach from the oxygen, pressurize his suit, put on what's called a bailout bottle, and then he had X number of minutes to get up, jump, and get down to the ground or he would have been in trouble. And, and uh, the person who came to us, uh, Alan Eustace out of Google said, hey, why do we have a capsule at all? And we agreed and we said, yeah, there's no reason why you just can't go up in a, in a, uh, in a uh, spacesuit and just be dropped. And so our program uh, was about two years behind Red Bull Stratus. So they broke the record at 128,000 feet in, in October of 2012. And then in October of 2014, we went up to 135,890 feet and dropped uh, Alan Eustace. And so we now hold the record for the highest exit altitude for a skydive. Um, Felix still own, owns the highest speed because he didn't have a drogue chute. We had a drogue chute because of the spinning effect. We wanted to make sure a person didn't spin up. Um, and so technically he has the highest, longest fall uh, without a drogue. We have the longest fall with a drogue. Uh, but it was, I know it took the uh, industry by a little bit of storm. We didn't, it's not like we had secret protocols and, you know, hand signals and, 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 you know, we code words. We just didn't put it out there. When, when we actually broke the record, there was a, one reporter from the New York Times there was a, a friend of Alan's who had signed a non-disclosure agreement. Hmm. And the minute it was broken, we put it out to the press. But uh, I know the biggest reaction I got from people was, hey, how come you didn't take us along? And, and how come, you know, you didn't, you didn't let us stream this and, and live vicariously through this? And, uh, and well, it, it just wasn't the, it was an engineering project and it really wasn't meant to be, you know, we weren't trying to sell, you know, uh, sugary water with, uh, with a lot of additives in it. You know? <laughs> right. Not so much a publicity stunt, but more of a capability proof right. exercise. Right. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first, and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on, but business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. Let's move on to another project that Paragon's involved with. I'm going to read this out because it's a lot of words. The Mars One Surface Habitat Environmental Control and Life Support System, which you abbreviate as ECLSS. Tell us about this project and, and your involvement in it. Okay, yeah, and there's a good lesson learned from that too. So mm -hmm. Mars One, you may remember, they, they made a splash because they said, hey, we're going to put on a contest for a one-way trip to Mars. And, uh, and everybody kind of said, oh, this is ridiculous. They got well over 100,000 people who volunteered to go one way to Mars. Um, and so they contracted with us to do both the surface habitat, environmental control, and life support system, the ECLS as we call it, and also the, the surface suit. 
So we did the analysis of that and said, okay, here's what we think the initial capability should be and how it would evolve into something more permanent on, la on land. Um, that, it was funny because a, a group of people from MIT came out and said, well, this is ridiculous because we've done an analysis of just the logistics and spares and you'd have to have a multi-ton vehicle land just for the spares. Hmm. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it was kind of interesting to me because yes, if you take bad assumptions, you can come up with a bad answer. And that's kind of what they did is they took the spares philosophy from the space station which is big, what we call ORUs, orbital replacement units, where if a pump fails, you replace the whole pump package, which can be a 200-pound item. Mm. So they then took all of that spares philosophy instead of all the things that can go wrong and showed you'd have to have this. And what mm. they missed in the subtleties of what we said about, about it or what we wrote about it is the spares philosophy has to be baked into the beginning. Yeah. And the spares philosophy has to be the O-ring on the pump. It is not that you replace the whole pump if the O-ring goes bad. And, or if you have the electronics module on a pump go bad, you replace the board in the electronics module. You don't, so that then when you do that, and we had done that, it showed that you, yes, you'd have to have spares, but you don't have to have tons of spares. But it was a little bit of a reducto ad absurdum type thing, you know, where, where if you take somebody's argument and you make an absurd assumption, you can show that their argument's absurd. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it was unfortunate in a way. But, um, but it, it, probably the biggest things that have come out of that that have been somewhat ignored is that really to, to get down on the Martian surface with a sizable um, number of people, and there's been, some, uh, there's been some articles just in the last few days about putting a million people on Mars, that really you can't do it without a decent-sized, medium-sized nuclear reactor. Uh, mm. um, you know, uh, I was asked to consult on a design project that was it's at the London School of Design now, or the London Museum of Design, about what a Mars base would look like. And I said, all these pictures you see of glass domes and solar arrays laying out on the thing, and it's all never going to happen. Um, you know, the you have a dust storm, and we lost Opie because of this, right? We lost opportunity to rover because a dust storm blanks out. If you look straight up at the sun during a dust storm in, on Mars, all you will see is a black, pitch black scene looking straight at the sun. And so if you can't get over those two month long sandstorms and stuff or, or dust storms, you're never gonna make it. And so you need a power supply. And a lot of people have pushed us for, hey, you know, you should be growing plants and growing plants to make their food and regenerate their food. Well, we've done that study over and over again, over 25, 30 years, and, and we can show that, and we said that in this report, you will not have a substantial amount of your food coming from bioregenerative stuff until at least five years and maybe 10 years into your mission. It will be a lot cheaper to essentially ship from Earth the nutrients and the micronutrients and stuff you need, um, and also much more robust than relying on plants that by the way, if the plants get a disease, you wipe out your food supply, which is always mm -hmm. a bad thing to happen. So, physiochemical for the no, short and medium term is mandatory. Um, then you could start talking about plants and stuff like that. I, I often get the question, "What's the first plant going to be growing for food on Mars?" And I kind of smile and say, "Yeast," and see <laughs> if the person's much of a biologist to realize that mm -hmm. that's not a plant. But, right. but yeah, yeasts and algaes are probably going to be the first things that you can have the fundamentals of proteins and stuff like that. But, um, you know, growing a peanut plant or growing a tomato is well down the line. 
Mm-hmm. Or potatoes. <laughs> or potato. Oh, yes, our potatoes, right. <laughs> the Martian. <laughs> well, I get asked all the time, what's the most unrealistic thing about the Martian, the movie? And I usually very wryly say, well, it was how modern the NASA buildings looked. That, uh, that was the part that was the most unrealistic about the whole movie. <laughs> interesting. Well, let's see. Let's. This is supposed to be a season about small sats. Uh, it's not a particular area that Paragon focuses on, but I am curious about it. Uh, is there anything important that people need to know about thermal control with small satellites? Have we got the technology we need already, or does something else need to be developed? Well, right now, with the power densities you've got with the batteries and, and what capabilities you want for a small sat, uh, really the, the governing thing for us is the power density versus the area. So it's, mm-hmm. it's how much power you've got in a small box versus the surface area of that box to be able to dissipate the parasitic heat that comes off, whether it's when you're draining a battery or charging a battery or mm-hmm. if you have some item that's running. And, and so right now that has it's not been a governing factor on what they're thinking about because batteries only have a certain power density, number of watts per hour, you know, watt hours per cube kilogram of space. Um, but it, it could, especially if we get more capable with the communications and the, if you have laser communication instead of radio communication and stuff. But then Paragon's been working on things like inflatable uh, radiators and stuff like that mm-hmm. to be able to handle that. But that's supposed to be in a really small package. So, so right now, it's not, a, it's not a major piece of our business. We get called about it fairly often. Um, there's plenty of ways to fix it at this point in time. Uh, so it's not a big part of our business. Okay. But it seems like it's easier to cool off a CubeSat than it is to keep the heat in. Yeah, it is. Right now, because of the, the power density to area ratio, it's, uh, it's the matter of how do you keep them warm, not the, how do you keep them cold. Okay. And we've talked a little bit about Paragon's relationship with NASA. And I'm curious, because commercial is growing right now, the private sector is growing like crazy. Who should be reaching out to you? Uh, I'm curious what you anticipate near future commercial use cases for, for your organization's expertise will be. Well, and, and they have been reaching out to us, but anybody who's looking at doing a private uh, space station of any type, whether they're around mm-hmm. the earth or around Ma- the moon, um, are going to Mars. The, the, so there's the, the private people who want to do long duration life support. Um, I think the people that are doing suborbital, um, they're kind of beyond the game and they're, they're going to be going. Uh, and it's interesting, they, they were all sort of, there was a little bit of this, well, life support isn't our biggest worry. We've got to get a rocket to work and we've got all this other stuff. Um, I'm very curious when we actually start flying humans, um, what will show up? Um, mm. The, 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 the hardest part of what we do is that we're in a small box with people that are breathing and putting out all sorts of other gases, whether we're burping or farting or whatever else. And you've got to be able to deal with those in a short, you know, five minute mission or a, a total of two hours that maybe you're from the time you shut the door until you open the door. There's ways to kind of tough through that. Once you start getting above that, it's a little bit harder. Um, and you know, the, truth be told every single life support system that's flying that's more than more than a few minutes or hours um paragon has touched one way or the other either we've done the initial design schematics or whatever else or actually built pieces of hardware for it but think about it you're in the shower you're running the shower and you're in you've closed your bathroom door and you get out and the 
the wind, the, the mirrors are all fogged and you gotta wipe your mirror to be able to see. All of those things happen in spades on a spacecraft. And why, whereas like the virgins of the world and stuff, they're selling the view. So you gotta make sure that their mirror, that their windows stay clean um, and how you service them between to make sure they're cleaned mm -hmm. off, but you don't craze them or scratch them or otherwise, because mm -hmm. you don't want passenger number 100 to be complaining about looking through scratches in the window. Um, so I've been a little bit disappointed in how, how much when I've reached out, it's been like, well, no, no, we've got this handled. Um, so now I'm sitting in a wait and see environment to see what happens. <laughs> Right. Uh, I guess them. what, folks, prices go up yeah. <laughs> in this situation. Yeah. Uh, and, but we stand ready. We wish everybody a success, and we stand ready if somebody has found that they've, they've had a problem with their success, we're willing to come in and look at it. And, and the one thing, I mean, it's, it's tough to make things. It's not just condensation on the windows, because if you get condensation mm -hmm. on the metal structure behind the insulation and stuff, mm -hmm. If you get condensation there and then you don't dry out completely, you can start building up molds. You can start mm -hmm. building up other things. There's, there's a fairly decent protocol on the space station about wiping down with, with alcohol wipes and everything else, which, which uh, cause all sorts of problems because then the alcohol gets in the air and, and all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. but, um, it takes a lot of thought. And, and, but I understand these companies are written are started by people who they they learn their love for space from the science fiction novels and the and the Apollo program and everything else, and life support's never been a real, you know. I, I challenge people mm -hmm. to try to tell me where life support has been a major uh, plot line, other than that something goes wrong and they fix it and while they're mm -hmm. breathing again, like in Star Trek or even if you look at something like Passengers the movie, mm -hmm. you can say that was a full up life support problem, but it, in reality it was uh, it was actually an artificial intelligence problem and in, in the the, the spacecraft was trying to mitigate the problem and couldn't was breaking down. But uh, anyway, so, so yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the thing is, is hmm. uh, life support will come back and bite you in the rear end. Uh, right. Don't take uh, it for granted folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every, yep. every area seems to have its own intricate, knowledge you know whether you're studying opera or nascar or something like that you could think nascar is just a dumb thing of people driving around in an oval you start learning about it and man there's yeah. there's a whole world there and same thing here for life support well um, and, and i will say that that's that's one of the keys of innovation is mm -hmm. not being so ingrained that you think you know all the problems and therefore mm -hmm. you you have your own mental box of what the solutions are and so it's kind of hard to maintain that balance of, okay, let's throw it out, look at it from fundamentals and come back, back at it. And that's tough to do, but we've been very successful in doing that. Um, and, and, you know, the Arthur C. Clarke, I think said, mm -hmm. you know, if you ask a gray haired eminent scientist if something's possible and they say it is, they're almost always right. And if you ask them if it's impossible and they say it is, then they're almost always wrong. Uh, you got to keep that humbleness involved. Uh, the problem is knowing the details. It's fun. I get, phone calls, I get emails, say, hey, why don't you do this? And of course, I, I do have the 15 reasons why we've studied and why this is impossible. But I've, I very much resist saying that. I say, hey, good thoughts. Think about this, though. And I'll shoot them like one or two things to think mm -hmm. about and let them think about it. And then very often they come back and say, ah, I see the problem. And that's, <laughs> that's really the way to handle that as opposed right. to just dictate and say, here are the eight reasons why your thing won't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more fun to be Socratic, I guess. Yeah, and you might find out somebody, somebody yeah. might come up with something really, really interesting. So you don't want to stifle the innovation. Right. 
Right. Well, let's end on a positive note here. What, what are the warning bells or, or signals, symptoms that somebody should be talking to you? They're, they're working on uh, uh, some sort of space vehicle or space station program. And uh, oh boy, this just came up. I should be talking to you guys. Um, well, anything, an unexpected result when you go and fly. So hmm. the first time you stick people into something and you fly it um, and you think you have a model that says, okay, our CO2 levels will peak out a little bit when people are exercising, we'll get a little bit dry and our CO2 levels will go down when everybody's asleep. You want to predict those things out and then you want to see what would actually really happen. And if you diverge a little bit from too much and too much is like maybe 10 or 15 or 20% from where you thought it was going to be, I would call in an expert to say, hey, we thought we understood this, but we don't understand it as much as we thought because it's those corners of the box that hurt you. It's hmm. when everything's running nominal, it's fine. But when you start getting excursions towards one corner of the box, or the other, you want to make sure that you, you're not harming somebody or you're not seeing a symptom of something that can come back and, and bite later. So, so you don't, you don't want to get that, you know, that deviance becomes the norm. And so you say, hmm. Oh, well, it didn't go what we liked, how we wanted it to, but, it didn't kill anybody anyway, so let's not worry about it. That's definitely the wrong attitude. That was sort of the challenger attitude with the O-rings. Oh, we've mm. got a few buffalo eyes, but they still work. And a little bit with the, um, you know, the heat shield on this on mm -hmm. Columbia. Yeah, we've had things fall off, but it's never done enough harm. But those are that's when you get that normalization of deviance from the norm that you got to watch out for. So I would say, you fly it. It doesn't do what you really think it was going to do. Come and talk to us, and we'll we'll. We'll sit down, maybe look at your model and, mm -hmm. and determine whether you made an assumption that we think is not correct. Or if you want, we'll build a model ourselves and then compare mm -hmm. to your model. I don't recommend that because then you get into arguments of whose model's right. But I, I'd like to dive into the models and see how they, how really what engineering comes down to. No, no model is right. No model has a perfect mm -hmm. answer. It really comes down to, do you agree with the assumptions going in the model? And so that's where we'd go. All right some statistical process control, useful stuff in there. My guest today has been Grant Anderson, co-founder, president and CEO now of Paragon Space Development Corp. Grant, how can people get a hold of you and Paragon, learn more about your company? Well, definitely, um, we keep a very active website and obviously we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, Twitter and, and stuff of that nature. Um, but yeah, go to our website. We try to update it fairly often, uh, especially if you're looking for a job, look at our careers and, and look in there, we are hiring. Um, and then, uh, keep a, keep a, you know, go in and put, what, what is the thing on Google or whatever you can put in some keywords and it'll oh, like tell a you Google alert, yeah. Google alerts, yeah. put us on Google alerts. And, uh, I think you'll see a fair amount of stuff coming out from us. We don't tend to do big media presentations. We are a subsystem. We, we try to stay in the background, but, uh, we're out there. It's just a matter of finding us in this information age. Very cool. Well, thanks for being here today, Grant. Thank you very much, sir. We really appreciate it. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory, compliance and 
gosh, the end customer. Who would have thought about that, right? So you can sign up for this. If you go to coldstartech.com slash MSB, that's short for Make Space Boring, the mission we're on, then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted. I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Mm-hmm.